As the housing affordability problem deepens and the conversation shifts from the hurdles faced by first home buyers to the worsening rental crisis, I can't help wondering whether the solutions posed by our governments aren't merely tinkering at the edges. Surely the solution is to address supply. So why aren't we seeing meaningful initiatives that will really move the needle? Do our governments lack the will? Is it the NIMBYs? What is in the way of urgent action? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. We're joined today by Peter Tulip, Chief Economist at the Centre for Independent Studies, and he's previously worked at the Research Department of the Reserve Bank of Australia, so we'll be chatting about that as well. Um, And also before that, the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. Now, we have interviewed Peter before and that was back in November 2021. had a very informative discussion around research he's done around whether supply is the answer to the affordability problem, and that's episode 201 if you want to go back and check it out. But we thought it was high time we caught up with him again to hear about what he has to say about the current state of the land. Thanks for coming again, Peter. It's great to be chatting with you. Thanks, Veronica. Good to talk. Peter, really enjoyed our chat last time, and I encourage our listeners to um, have a listen, but also read your new report. I stumbled on that. Well, it was pretty easy to stumble on. It was on all the papers were covering you, and um, it's on all basically um, the title of the report, Where Should We Build um, Housing? I should have just double-checked that, but it's really interesting to talk about, obviously, the NIMBY and uh, the YIMBY um, movement. What's your thoughts on, um, you've been tracking this for years, do you feel like there's a bit of a a groundswell and potentially the NIMBYs need to be worried? Before you answer, Peter, can you tell us what a YIMBY is? So I think the big problem with housing affordability is that we're not building enough. And the reason we're not building enough is because local residents object to new density in their neighbourhood. And they're often called NIMBYs for not in my backyard that these people will often recognise that we need more housing. They just don't want it near them. They want it on the other side of the river or down the road. And a lot of people are recognising this, so there is a a growing groundswell for more housing supply. And the advocates for that are often called yimbies for (laughs) yes in my backyard. (laughs) Right. I hadn't actually heard that term before. <laughs> and I'm one of them. <laughs> I was just, it's, it's a funny one, right? It's like when um, people are trying to enter the property market, they, oh, prices need to fall, become property bears, right? Um, and they'll listen to our good friend, Martin North, and they'll you know read lots of things that the market, they're going to crash, right? Then all of a sudden they enter the market and then they become property bulls, right? And I wonder if the NIMBYs, uh, the YIMBYs end up becoming NIMBYs. I mean, do you, as, as a YIMBY yourself, are you a, a NIMBY in your own backyard, like it, it's, it's a, a lot of people are quite hypocritical in this space. They, they want it when it benefits them, but when it doesn't benefit them potentially in their mind, they, they don't want it. Yeah. So that's one of the real political problems. One of the big constraints we're up against that they're mainly we're advocating for more affordable housing. And that means lower rents and lower housing prices. And obviously that's not good for landlords and it's not good for existing home buyers. For the existing home buyers, partly we're appealing to their more noble nature, but also a lot of them will have children. And where are they going to live? The the current generation of homeowners tends to be fairly old, fairly wealthy, and they're looking after themselves. And it's a real problem. Yeah, what? Where are their children going to live? So, um, you know, I have uh, children who are getting into their twenties and starting to talk about moving away from home. But the Sydney real real estate market makes that just very, very difficult. If eventually they want to buy a home, 
it's very difficult to do so without actually the support of the bank of mum and dad. But an easier way to help them would just be to stop the obstacles to supply and, and create a bit of affordable housing. You um, are, and I recall our conversation with you last time, and it was really interesting because you've obviously done a lot of research in this area. And since we interviewed you, we also interviewed Dr. Cameron Murray, and you, I'm sure you're familiar with his work. And, and that got me really thinking about, you know, because at first there's this sort of utopian thing. You think, okay, well, you know, local councils should just make it easier for developers to build, uh, release more land, um, you know, basically break down a lot of those hurdles. Um, costs and, and all sorts of things that basically get in the way of building more supply. And what Dr. Murray was saying was basically, but then just look at pure economics and, and the incentives here, you know, when developers are going to sit there and go, hang on a minute, I'm not necessarily going to maximize returns on my block of land or my site. If I develop now, I'm going to hold back and I'm going to wait and I'm going to constrain supply myself, you know. So so it's not as simple as just sort of saying, oh, well, we need to build more or we need to make it easier to build more. It, it's obviously a very, very complex uh, problem that we have. And I know that at the moment too, we've got different players coming in and having lots to say about this. You've got the community housing associations and, and how they are talking about, you know, quotas for affordable housing within new developments and subdivisions and that sort of thing. You've got, and lots of other things they're talking about as well. I'm just sort of picking out one one topic there. You've also got the build to rent sector, which is very emergent in this country, and but isn't going to really solve the problem of the affordability necessarily directly anyway, because it's not targeted at that end of the market. But obviously, by providing a higher end product, then that will give other people who may be taking uh, properties or uh, taking rents, for instance, um, of properties that they could afford better potentially, and they're taking those away from the affordable sector. And then you've got governments that have stopped supplying public housing for some time, for decades, in fact, at all levels of government. And then you've also got investors that have been actively disincentivized uh, to participate in the market as well in many cases. Certainly in Queensland, the government up there seems very hell-bent on uh, making it difficult for investors, individual investors. So you, you've got all these different players sort of conspiring to not help the supply problem. Um, what do you – do you have a solution? Sure. I think, <laughs> you make, I think you're making it unnecessarily complicated. Okay, good. The housing market, like any market, if you increase supply, the price will fall. Now, Cameron Murray says builders will not be willing to provide housing if the price falls. And that would be a powerful, sensible argument if the housing market was monopolistic or even if there was a cartel, that if somehow or other producers were all able to gang up and all able to withhold supply, then they could push up the price the way um, OPEC does, for example, in the oil market. You know, there are lots of examples of cartels and monopolies restricting output, and that pushes up the price. You can't do that in a competitive market. That if some builders say, we're not going to build this housing that people want, we want the price to go up, there are thousands of other builders in most big cities in Australia that are more than willing to join it to provide that service. And that's especially the case when you're talking about apartments and urban infill. But builders and developers are two separate entities here, though. It's, yeah, I mean, sometimes you get two, one the same, but they're, they're different. So, yeah, I mean, and also builders are going broke at the moment, so maybe, maybe that's actually not the case. What do you then say is the cause? Because it's well publicised that the um, approvals have been on the decline now for the last five years. What do you then put that down to? Um, so a lot of builders paid, in hindsight, much too much for their land. They thought that house, they were buying land a few years ago when house prices were on a, and apartment prices were on a steep upward trajectory. They thought there were big profits to be made in fact, we've seen interest rates go right up high. That's killed demand. Prices have fallen substantially. They certainly didn't keep rising the way they were. And so, and so the equity of all of these builders and developers has been wiped out and that they're no longer able 
even to pay their bills, let alone to profitably expand operations. So, and, 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 and this is a temporary transition. I mean, eventually land prices will react to the change in demand and a lot of these builders, I guess some of them actually are going to go bust and their operation will be bought out by someone that does have the equity and the financial capability to exploit these very profitable opportunities. So we are seeing a big temporary disruption, that's true, but it is temporary. It's a really good point you make there around, though, that the land um, that builders have been land banking, right, that was profitable to build when building prices were much more, uh, less volatile, I guess, um, and labor was easy to get access to and the prices were rising because then it was easy to make money and sell, right? But if you can't get finance, you can't get t- uh, staff, you can't get materials and there's no money to be making the bill then you, and you're worried about your other projects, then obviously you're going to see... Um, yeah, much less supply. And I think you're right. Like they're not going to be able to build until they have the confidence around materials and labor and prices are going back up again. So you're right. That, that kind of solves that temporary sort of problem. Because I think the builders that have gone bust were relying very much on fixed price contracts so that they had sold these properties at a, at a given price or sort of undertaken to do the work and then construction costs go against them. Their demand dries up. They're in all sorts of trouble and they're going to go bust, but their operations will be taken over by someone that by someone more capable. But I, what I'm struggling to understand is that if we start to see that, that those with the, the wherewithal to be able to develop these sites um, come into the fray, either the site's going to be sold or they go into liquidation, they're, they're sort of fire sold or whatever – it doesn't rely on prices to start rising to make it attractive again for developers to be able to actually build these these complexes. I mean, isn't that the part of the problem that the the falling prices that actually been one of the contributors? The average apartment in Sydney is selling for about a million dollars, and it costs about six hundred thousand dollars to supply. That I mean, and that's essentially we're doing a calculation of building up in. Um, having a higher building so you don't need to pay more land that 400,000 that extra $400,000 which is the profit on each extra apartment goes to pay for the land in a lot of cases in in most cases that's already paid for in fact they paid much too much for it and so a small squeeze on prices and costs means they're no longer in the black it puts them in the red and so they're stopping but it's a very profitable opportunity for someone who has the equity. What's your thoughts, Peter, on just the government taking a bit less tax, right? There's a lot of the cost of a, an apartment or a house or a new build. There's lots of taxes. There's been lots of reports around different percentages that, you know, it could be 20 to 50% of the cost, right? Development tax and GST and blah, blah, blah. The list goes on. Um, what's your thoughts on the government? You know, I know they're potentially going to make t- changes to build to rent tax, right? The, the changes in terms of how they tax that to make it more enticing. What's your thoughts on the government just, you know, taking a bit of a hit to their pocket to solve the housing problem? So there are lots of different taxes and they operate on the housing market in different ways. One of the biggest taxes we have is just land tax and compounded by council rates for many people. Um, And ultimately that just reduces land prices. The higher the land tax or council rates, then the less people will pay for their land. Other taxes, um, such as GST or um, infrastructure charges, well, th- there are, yeah, there are lots of them, uh, will tend to reduce incentives for developers and so uh, more problematic. I've got a spiel on build to rent if you want you raise that before we do that i'm just curious about what you're talking about their rates um and land tax actually keep land values down aren't they a function of land value yes and and so the higher your rate of land tax the less people will pay for the land but hang on that i'm just i'm struggling sorry the after tax yeah i mean so the after tax payment is higher Yes. The before tax payment is lower. Um, are you 
I am a bit confused on here. Uh, only because as a buyer's agent and, and even when I was a sales agent, I've never known of, it's common for people to buy a property and then have no idea what the rates are going to be and no idea even that they might be up for land tax. I mean, obviously our clients know these things, but, but you know, I know uh, from my own personal experience before I learned the hard way a long time ago <laughs> that, oh, land tax, oh, you know, so, so I'm. So, so on, on, the, on that, for most owner occupiers, land tax and um, council rates are not a big deal. Where they really matter, where they're huge, is for multiple property owners. Right, yes. So the I think it in in New South Wales, I think it goes up to about 3% is the land tax rate. When you own multiple properties, I think it's maybe above 10, 10 million maybe. The no, threshold. there's a threshold. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah I mean, it, yeah. it's an increasing rate of thresholds and an increasing schedule of rates. It's a horrible tax. So I hate it. <laughs> Well, it, it's really injurious. I mean, it's really harmful. I mean, in, and this gets back to what Chris was saying before, that land tax, if you just own one property, is very small and often zero. But as you get into multiple property earnings and your land earnings increase, it goes up towards 3%. It's different in different states. Um, that's approximately your rental yield. And uh, they're different, and it's measured in different bases and everything. So, if you're a multiple property owner, most of your rental, uh, well, a huge chunk of your rental income goes towards land tax, and that is why we don't have a build-to-rent sector in Australia, because you can't build a block of apartments, which is going to put you in the very top. Anything above two or three stories will put you in the very top threshold. Most of your rental return from that will be swallowed in the high, in high um, land taxes, and so as a result, we don't have corporate institutional landlords the way that are common in America or Europe. We have a lot of single property landlords, and that in turn gives rise to all sorts of problems in the rental market. In particular, if a huge chunk of your wealth is of your asset portfolio comprises this rental property, you'll need to keep it liquid, that your financial circumstances might change or for whatever reason. And so for that reason, single property landlords don't want to offer long leases. Not, and not only that, but in fact, their financial circumstances often do change. They, re they retire or decide to move properties or for a lot of they I mean, they decide to sell. And so there's a huge amount of turnover amongst single property landlords, which compounds the absence of long leases and, really, and is the, the biggest reason we have insecurity of tenure in Australia and contrasts dramatically with the security of tenure in Europe and the United States, where they have institutional landlords who are just delighted to have a tenant there for decades and decades. And so is is your is your view on build to rent positive in in if that if the land tax thing was solved, if we could remove the progressiveness of land tax so that you paid the same rate of land tax for owning one property as for owning a hundred, so that there wasn't the dis disincentive to multiple property owning, then we would have much more institutional landlords and we would have much more security of tenure. So yeah, I think that would be a great thing. But would that then go against the other point in terms of, you know, because land tax, like you said, does constrain property values, right? Because if land's what's causing that uh, is, is what that property is mainly valued on, right, is the, the land. If there's no land tax, doesn't that just mean investors are willing to pay more to, to pay for land? And then so you're just going to see increasing prices where there's a lot of investors playing? Yeah, it's essentially the land tax is borne by the land value. So who, whoever is selling the land to the developer ends up paying the land, the capitalised value of the land tax. So the developer buys a site and that site attracts land tax. So that it doesn't actually matter how many apartments or dwellings they build on it, it's the land itself. But of course, the more dwellings you can build on the land, the more valuable the land is, and so therefore they are linked. 
Um, and and I know we interviewed. We did an interview on on Bill Torrent before the first building was completed, a couple of few years back now. And I remember that land tax issue was was discussed back then. But also, land tax is a state based tax, right? And I think we yep. we're all aware of what Queensland tried to do with land tax and investors recently. Um, are there any states or territories that, in fact, is uh, uh, you know, correct me on the territory thing? I'm not sure they can. Can they? Charge land tax? Yes, they can. Um, ACT is actually increasing its land tax very substantially to replace stamp duties. That's right, yes. Um, so are there any jurisdictions where the land tax has been at, or changed or modified to encourage build-to-rent? Is, is there any? I know that there's some build-to-rent being constructed in uh, Melbourne and I think in Sydney as well. Uh, is, it, is it encouraged yeah, I, anywhere I, I, in particular? Overall, it's still a, a big impediment to multiple property owning. Um, the New South Wales government uh, introduced a bunch of measures reforming land tax for build-to-rent properties um, last year, but I can't remember the details. So I, I think there's like, let's say 10, 10 million dwellings right in Australia, let's say 11, I think it's up to about now, but, and you know, 30% of those, let's say 3 million are roughly the rental stock, right? Um, you know, and I think at the moment there's 30,000 build to rents in pipeline or built or, so we're talking like, what's that? 1%. 1%. 1%. One, one yep. And, you know, and we may be building a couple hundred thousand dwellings a year. And then you've got on top of that, uh, we're having issues with getting construction workers, right? The government's spending money. We're doing big infrastructure projects. We're trying to, and so let alone trying to build commercial towers, you know, et cetera. So there's... I guess there's, have we got enough a capacity restraint as a country that, yeah, we need to be building a lot more, but we're already at capacity if we want to do all these other things like build trains and metros and, you know, Olympics and all these sort of things. Are we sort of in this false belief that nothing can really be solved? Because if we wanted to increase supply from 200 to 500, we just wouldn't have the capacity. Even to go from 200 to 400 would be ridiculous. Um, what's your thoughts on just the capacity restraint as a country? So one of the really big constraints on the construction industry is the is the national rate of unemployment, which is three point five percent, which is at a what is it a forty fifty lowest level since the early nineteen seventies. So it's at a fifty year low, and that just makes it incredibly difficult to get labour. And for a, there's a problem with the construction industry is that a lot of the workers there prefer to work in other industries if they can get the the work. And then, and so a tight labour market tends to hurt construction in particular, um, partly because of just the permanence of the job of the work. Um, the we have had huge constraints on the construction industry, but they're easing up a lot. The as new approvals are falling very very quickly, um, we still have a high level of construction going at the moment but new jobs are not being added to the pipeline. And so as all of the current work is completed, there isn't new work for these workers to go on to. And so these capacity constraints are easing very quickly, I think. But I mean, I guess even let's say that um, there's only a certain number of people in our country that are, are willing to you know, work in this industry, right? So yes, there's less work, but there's still the same amount of people can produce the same amount of work. Unless you have a massive technological advancement that we can build, you know, a tower with a thousand people rather than 5,000 people, there's always got to be a natural, and especially with a tight labor market, there's going to be a certain amount of hands on deck that can actually build these things. And I mean, I guess we could cut back our government spending, right? We could do, we're not going to always be building big metros and um, big stadiums, et cetera. Um, you know, government's going to run out of money, right? So, but just in, do you think that that's, Obviously, in a fast-growing population, are we always going to have this undersupply issue where we can't build enough to house the demographic problem that we've got? It's certainly a problem. And if I got all my dreams came true, we'd have a substantially increased construction sector as a big share of the economy, maybe double what it historically has been. And yeah, there are real adjustment costs to ramping up to that level of construction. We just don't have the skills available. And so as a medium term solution to this, we need we will need to increase wages in the construction sector. 
to attract workers back in there and and to keep them there. Um, at the moment, construction work is often unattractive relative to other work that gives rise to periodic shortages. And the way markets compensate for that is through changing relative wages. And that's that's obviously a problem, but if you if we want to put more priority on housing our growing population, we need to pay our construction workers more. So how how does immigration feed into this? Because apart from the fact we've got to house we're what, four hundred thousand immigrants this year, uh, as opposed to what's the long term average is one hundred sixty thousand per annum or something. I mean, that's a huge increase. Um, talk of more. We've got to house those people for starters. But um, I would imagine that uh, potentially there's a, a chunk of those would be construction workers. Would that be fair to say? And uh, I saw something on seven thirty report the other night that was talking about the, I guess, the failures of our um, our immigration system in that we're meant to be bringing in skilled. Uh, labor, however, it turns out that apparently we are geared much more to be bringing in a temporary visa um, and sort of unskilled or, no, or non-skilled workers more so. So maybe the laborer type rather than the skilled construction worker. But is that meaningful? Is that something that's that's um, a meaningful factor in the construction industry? It's it's a huge factor. I mean, so we're getting we historically build what say two hundred thousand dwellings a year. The um, national dwelling stock increases. I think that the average is about two percent a year. With high immigration, that number will increase. Suppose it goes up to a four. That we want the dwelling stock to grow, say, at four percent a year. That's essentially a doubling of the construction industry. So you've got a small increase in population, but a huge increase in construction. Is just when you work through the maths of it. And so even if a lot of these migrants are builders. Um, they're still probably going to add more to housing demand than to housing supply. And so this is going to be a huge crunch in the rental market in particular over, over the next year that we've already got incredibly low vacancies. And as population increases combined with the absence of new properties being added to the pipeline, I think the rental market will get very, very tight. Mm. Yeah, I mean, after it's already extremely tight. I mean, with the um, the NIMBYs giving, you know, becoming NIMBYs, right? Is there any sort of uh, councils that are, you know, prime? I mean, it, you think about it in Sydney, you might have the beaches, you know, the lower North Shore, parts of the eastern suburbs, um, you know, parts of the upper North Shore where, you know, they're, they're doing everything they can to, their housing targets never get hit. There's no accountability there from my understanding. Um and, uh, you know, you read the local news, even when up on the beaches, they're whinging you for, you know, as if a new townhouse development's going to go ahead, right? It's, it's, it's very much, um, anti-new development, but is there any examples in our capital cities where people, suburbs have shifted from this mentality to adding a lot more housing stock that typically weren't that we can use as sort of good news stories to educate other councils? Because ultimately if people can feel that that's going to actually increase, potentially not fall, make prices fall, but is going to increase housing dwellings in an area and maybe increase the amenity. Maybe people will be more for it rather than the fear of change. Um, yeah, there are. There are bad councils. You mentioned several of them, but there are also good councils. Liverpool, for example, um, they've been building a lot of apartments out there. You, you drive out there, the skyline keeps changing. And reflecting that, the... Um, price of apartments in Liverpool is relatively low. I mean, obviously, it's going to be lower the further you get up away from the city and some suburbs are more attractive than others. Even when you allow for that, um, housing in Liverpool is unusually affordable because they've been building a lot. And, and then when you go out into the regions, it varies a lot. I mean, that some country towns are very keen on extra development. They want the growth. They need the demand. Others are the opposite. Um, so so it's mixed. And, and reflecting that, you get a huge mix in housing prices, that in some regional towns, housing is incredibly cheap, and in others, it's incredibly expensive. 
I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower North Shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. I mean, like the the Mossmans of Sydney or the, uh, I don't know, the the Brightons or the Turaks of Melbourne or the, the Hawthorns or Henleys of Brisbane, right? Like where, you know, typically it's got all the ingredients of a, a NIMBY society, right? Very old, established wealth that's you know, tree-lined streets, heritage overlays, um, and very low density compared to its location to the city where they've shifted and they've said, well, actually, we're going to allow lots of townhouses. We're going to allow lots more apartments. So is, is there anywhere that you're aware that have taken that plunge and that have started to, yeah. Yeah. I mean, most cities have had pockets of rapid development. And often it comprises what they often call brownfield sites, a lot of old industrial land being converted to residential. Green Square is the biggest example of that in Sydney, for example. Um, Docklands in Melbourne, um, South Yarra, um, in Brisbane, along the river. Um, There's been, yeah, I mean, there are places where there has been a lot of building. Um, There are pockets. Often it's industrial. Um, sometimes it's state government driven and pushed, but it, it, it can be done. Um, and it it's had good effects on affordability where it has been done. I think, um, you know, you're looking at something like um, Balimba or in Brisbane or Mosman in Sydney or Turak in Melbourne. I mean, you're never going to see those big, beautiful character homes mowed down and, and a bunch of townhouses or apartments built there. But what you're talking about, those suburbs that do have the industrial, you know, the, the repurpose or the rezoning of the industrial land as, as you know, the way in which we ship goods, the way in which we, you know, transport, all that sort of stuff changes, obviously, then a lot of those, uh, you know, hubs are built on the outskirts of our cities now rather than industrial hubs in the middle and so, and obviously the value of that land has just changed by virtue of what's around it, proximity to the cities. And so therefore it's, it gets to a point where it always makes sense. It's the highest and best use of, of that, those, that land is residential. And then you start to see that the councils are rezoning them for high density and that makes them more valuable again. You know, I, I would argue in some areas, look at Marrickville, for instance, in inner, inner west of Sydney. And as you see the industrial being uh, land being rezoned there, it's it's making the whole suburb more desirable. So that's sort of an, an easy one to say, okay, well, the, or, or Summer Hill, the whole silos development there, and that brings more people, it brings more um, more 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 customers for cafes and restaurants and and the sort of amenity of an area. So you know, there are, those are sort of great success stories of a re. Uh, it's not so much a gentrification; it's a re uh, a redevelopment, basically. Um, of those areas, but there's, I guess, as we continue to do this, these sites get further, and, you know, fewer and further between, don't they? We run out of those sites, um, and then we got more hard decisions to be made. And I just don't think I, I'm not sure that it helps us to think, oh, well, you know, Mossman should ease up and, you know, get over it because it, what are, what's really in all reality, what is going to be redeveloped in a place like Mossman? I'll answer that question. Go um, for it. <laughs> The, the main road in Mossman is, is Military Road. Um, it's lined with two-storey shops. Um, you get a lot of boutiques and cafes and restaurants. Um, it's a 10-minute bus, bus ride to Wynyard, the, the centre of the central business district. It's incredibly attractive real estate being monopolised by low not even medium density housing. So just putting apartments along Military Road is, you know, it's already an incredibly busy 
crowded, um, congested, congested area, you're not really changing the character of the suburb. I mean, it, we're not bulldozing the gardens that make Mossman a, a, attractive. You're putting a lot of people in the centre near the transport nodes where you're where you add the most value, and and there are examples like that everywhere. I mean, you mentioned the eastern suburbs. I mean, so the local protesters were stopping a planned set of um, high-rise apartments near Edgecliff Station. That um, <laughs> <laughs> that's not that's not the prettiest part of the eastern suburbs. Even it'd do <laughs> it'd really benefit from a facelift. But 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 that's the point. I mean that. You you don't need to destroy the prettiest bits of our neighbourhoods. There are a lot of areas that are already um, fairly crowded, fairly busy, and often they're the they're the ones that already have the best transport and the best retailing access. And so often they're the ones that are they're the ones that are most attractive to, to develop further. I mean, in 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 general, your payoff from extra development is higher. Um, near train stations, partly because people want to work, partly because you don't have the change in character that annoys a lot of the local residents. These are already busy areas, so it's maximum gain for minimum disruption. So it sounds like the you know obviously the industrial areas you've got the you know you go on a Google Maps and you put the satellite on. Um, so there's many times, many episodes you can see all the white roofs, right? And you know that's. That's prime land that's obviously, at, you know, especially if it's close to the city that, you know, will turn into apartments, right? You can see that one by one in the Rosebury, Alexandria part of Sydney or St. Leonard's or even around Artarmid now, you know, was it five years ago it was Bunnings and Mechanics and now it's apartment blocks, right? And it's, um, and so that, that's shifting. Then you've got, there is a push around metro stations right now, all these new metro stations to have lots of high density around them because it makes a lot of sense. But I think your point around, yeah, if we are going to have a... You know, we need to build housing where people really want to live, right? And people do want to live in the Mossmans and the, the the eastern suburbs and the northern beaches and, you know, lots of places. But they're not building housing stock in these areas because the council controls are very, very limited. Um, but we should be relaxing, especially along the artillery roads and bus stops and where it's really accessible to get um, around without lots of cars, I guess. Um, is that sort of the missing ingredient you feel like? We're doing all the other things, but if we really wanted to, you know, change, the, give more options to, you know, future families, I guess we, we need to really change the zoning around the, the more expensive places of our capital cities, especially on the main roads and, um, yeah, key, key points. Right. So this is a big question. How would I change zoning policy? I think the big priority needs to be in housing targets for local councils. I think there are reasonable arguments for local control over neighbourhoods that if pe people do really want some control over what gets built near them and everything, um, but we don't want to give them the power to restrict supply, to restrict the quantity, because when they do, it's essentially they're acting like a cartel the local council will freeze new development the way it has in Mossman and Wallara and Hunters Hill and Waverley and a lot of the other local council areas you mentioned in Sydney and and drive up the price. And that's good for the local residents often, but it screws outsiders, um, people, people who want to rent, young home buyers and newcomers in general. So it's in society's interest to remove the power of local councils to say no to any development. We'll tell them, you have to build so many new dwellings, but you can decide where and how they go. If you want high density at your train station, you can do that. If you want medium density spread more generally, you can do that. So the way I would do it is I would allow local councils to decide the kind of housing that they get, but the state government needs to come in and tell them the quantity. And in particular, that quantity will be much higher, particularly in the inner and eastern suburbs. And so inner is 
but that's the Sydney's. My, sorry, my understanding was that that is actually sort of what the system is at the moment. The state government gives them quotas and they're meant to build to meet those quotas, but they're not. So it's... it's um, No, so, I, that, that, that's not the way I no? describe it. I mean, so the, so the targets currently for a lot of the local council areas we've been mentioning, um, Willara, Waverley, Hunters Hill, Mossman, and these are the very affluent areas of Sydney around the either on the harbour or in the eastern suburbs near the coast, those targets are incredibly low of the, of the nature of a few hundred dwellings over a five-year period, contrasting with the targets that are set out in the western suburbs, the working-class areas of Sydney, which are in the thousands. So, And in particular, we're talking Parramatta or Strathfield have, have targeted housing growth of many, many times what the affluent areas do. And so the problem with Sydney isn't that councils have been failing to meet their targets. The The biggest problem is that the targets have been too low. Is that, I mean, just being a bit of devil's advocate, is, is, is that partly because, well, land value in those areas is higher anyway, um, and so therefore... Um, you know, it's going to cost more to get a site to build on, um, but also that they're quite dense areas already. I mean, I know not all of those suburbs are dense, but some of them are quite dense already, um, you know, with a lot of apartment buildings, for instance. And so, and I don't know the, the data here, so I'm just, I'm literally just curious and asking because I'm thinking, hang on a minute. Um, so the opportunity or potentially the the geography there, the opportunity to build more is going to be, it should be easier to realise in some areas where perhaps it's not already as dense. Is that a fair argument? Or are you saying that basically it's because lobby groups are really that powerful that they're able to control um, the quotas that are being handed out in more affluent areas rather than uh, lower, you know, rather than the lower socioeconomic areas? Yeah, it's the it's the latter. It's that these these areas are noisy and politically powerful, and for a combination of reasons, have been indulged by the state governments with very low targets. Now, the argument you mentioned is a very common one that the these wealthy council areas object to new housing, saying we already have high density and. Your observations are correct. They are relatively more dense, dense, but that's not harming their quality of life. I mean, which you can tell from the property values that these are these are the most attractive areas in Sydney, as judged by willingness to pay. People will pay millions of dollars for an apartment in Willara or the, the eastern suburbs or, or Mossman. Um, though it only costs a fraction of that to supply. And it's those excess prices that tell us where we would get most value for new housing, which is in the overpriced affluent suburbs. And when you say overpriced, you mean that the price to build, um, the cost to build versus what you could sell at, that's basically where the most money could be made for developers, right? Or builders, right? If, But they can't build them because they haven't got the planning controls to do it, right? So reality is you, you, that builders would build there, you know, because if you didn't allow people to go three, four stories up along Military Road, people would be buying the houses, be turning that car wash into apartments. And ultimately you would create a lot more stock, which would put a downward pressure on prices of, but it also create housing dwellings in areas that people want to live, right? Um, and that, so that's exactly of, right. Yep. We need to, um, yeah, the, the part, part is the council don't want to do it and then it's, but it needs to, you have to have that higher quota and then actually accountability, some type of penalty if you're not getting close within it. And do they do that for other sort of things where they provide quotas and penalties for them at all? Or is it? So in, enforcement is a big issue. Um, and setting quotas is a bit useless unless you've got some effective enforcement mechanism. So. Let, let, let me say a little bit about that. Um, it happened, I think it was about two or three years ago, that Karingai Council said um, it didn't want to meet its targets, that 
you know, I don't know if you know, Karingar Council is one of the leafiest areas of Sydney. It's huge bushland and um, it, Google Maps is just all green um, when the satellite imagery. Um, and they said it was full. And Rob Stokes, who was then the planning minister, said, well, no, you've got a target. You have to meet it. And Karingar Council said, uh, drop dead. There was quite a bit of ongoing argy-bargy. A lot of it happened behind scenes, and we don't know the exact details, but they ended up doing a compromise. But the, um, when Karinga told them to drop dead, um, Stokes said, if you don't build it, I'll appoint an administrator who will. And apparently that got Karinga to the um, to the table. But it's a problem because a lot of councillors said, you'll just guarantee my re-election if you do that. Um, it's a bluff that a lot of councillors would like to call. So in the current legislation, we lack an effective enforcement mechanism. Um, there's just this drastic step of appointing an administrator, um, which state governments will be reluctant to do because it just radically escalates it. An easier way is to put in automatic provisions within the legislation one of which would be that the local and district planning panels treat adherence to the target as a primary consideration in approving applications. And so if a council is falling well below its target, um, the, the local or district planning panel would be predisposed to approve all new applications. And the more radical, you could do something like New Zealand has just done, which is if the council isn't meeting its targets, then medium density becomes allowed, approved as of right. That maybe may, and maybe you want and maybe you want to do that as I mean, say within a two hundred metre radius of train stations, so that there would be automatic approval for upzoning where it's most desired if the council is falling behind target. Yeah. So you, you, you choose where you want to build it, for the. but if you keep falling behind target, um, we're just going to come in and zone it for you and you're not going to get a choice. Um, and maybe that would be enough disincentive for people to get on board to say, hang on a sec, we don't want them to just do, you know, destroy our main shopping strip. We want them to. So we, we have to play ball here and to, you know, join the sort of big social movement. Let's change tack, if you don't mind, just to the RBA. I was um, just going to say, though, it, it's like they're being offered a shit sandwich, but you can choose whether you want white bread or brown. <laughs> um, I'll go brown, brown thanks. Um, so just on the RBA, there's, uh, I mean, it's, a, it's such a long story of what's happened in the last few years. and But, I mean, can you give us a bit of a, a layman's what's happening? Um, what's your thoughts on it? Um, and, you know, I guess a bit of a timeline of when we could expect, you know, different things happening. Sure. So there's been a major review of the Reserve Bank of Australia by this panel of three monetary policy experts. And they gave the government a, their report, was it about two weeks ago, which is 300 pages with 50 recommendations. So it's very thorough, very detailed, and has a lot of information. The It doesn't really recommend changes to monetary policy um, and it doesn't and it suggests some minor tweaks to what we call the policy framework that the main objectives of monetary policy what it does suggest on a very substantial scale is changes to the monetary policy process and in particular they've said we want interest rate decisions to be made by monetary policy experts instead of the current setup, which is a bunch of business leaders who get together and rubber stamp whatever the governor proposes to them. The reviewers said that's not enough scrutiny, that the governor's a clever guy, but he is just one individual, he's human, maybe he, maybe he makes mistakes the current process has no way of figuring that out because there's just no real scrutiny to the decisions. And so they're putting in this extra board of monetary policy experts to 
which should give us more confidence that decisions are made, um, have been thoroughly scrutinized before they're made. Well, it's interesting. The RBA is just on live has increased from 3.6 to 3.85, um, uh, which is a, you know, the market just now was pricing 0% chance of that happening. Um, you know, do you think that the way that RBA have handled things over the last few years would change after this report and the way that we, we do things dramatically, or do you think it's a good idea? Yeah. So, okay. The last few years have been dominated by the pandemic, um, which is a one in a hundred year event. And so if they're going to handle that differently, we won't know that for another hundred years. Um, but prior to that, um, the Reserve Bank had interest rates that many of us, including me, think were too high for too long, that they should have had lower interest rates, which would have reduced unemployment and got inflation closer to their target. And I argue, as well as, well as many others, that that was a mistake because the processes were inadequate. There just wasn't enough scrutiny given to those decisions. And if we appoint experts to run monetary policy, then the hope will be that we have inflation more stable around its target and more stable unemployment. I was actually, I can't remember who we were interviewing, Chris, that when I actually discovered that the board of the RBA was not made of... Um, you know, monetary expert, monetary policy experts. I was really alarmed, actually. I mean, I, I think a lot of us just assume that they know that that's what that's their bread and butter. You know, and, and that's unusual around the world that um, the monetary policy in most other countries is dominated. I mean, yeah, just by the by experts. I mean, in fact, I mean, you mentioned earlier. I used to work at the Federal Reserve Board. That the and when I was there, I'd give briefings to the board and everything. The people I was briefing actually wrote the monetary policy textbooks that I studied from. So it was a bit a bit like calls to Newcastle. I was lecturing the very top people in the world on monetary policy. Peter, you did a lot of um, modelling um, on housing prices, right? I think your model, from my understanding, is, is one of the baseline models that people do house price forecasts off. Um, and... Uh, Chris Joy's done his own little take on it, right? Um, his tweak is, uh, you know, he's put his own little source in there. Um, but I mean, that model, for example, his model said if interest rates went up 1%, prices would fall, you know, 20% or 25%. Um, RBA rents up 3.75% now, right? Or whatever it is. Um, prices haven't fallen, you know, anywhere near those amounts. Um, what's your thoughts on the resilience of the, the property market over the last 12 months? And, you know, the signs that, you know, there's potentially a lack of listings and prices are even going up in Sydney, um, you know, over the last quarter. Like, has it surprised you how resilient the pullback in stock and the support to prices, even though interest rates have gone up so much? Right. So there are a few things going on there. I mean, so we've got different measures of prices. If you look at core logic, I think they've fallen maybe about 8% in nominal terms over the past year or so. And at the same time, the CPI has gone up, what is it, 7%. So that in real terms, we've got a 15% reduction in house prices, which is getting very close to the numbers that Chris Troy is talking about. The, um, and remember that the interest rate that my model says is important and that Chris is feeding off is for a permanent change in interest rates. So um, essentially, when we're talking about global long-term real bond yields, that's what, that's what really drives house prices. People aren't going to radically change their house price bid for a temporary change in interest rates because they'll know next year it'll go back to what trend was or what was normal. Um, it's only when you get a persistent permanent change. Um, so a lot of what has happened in house prices is in line with what we would have expected, that when interest rates fell during the pandemic, we had a huge ramp up in prices. And now that interest rates have gone back to something normal, we've had a substantial correction to that. Um, so that's interest rates still are, I think, the dominant 
factor driving house prices, but they're not the only factor. And in particular, um, we've had a big increase in housing demand from partly from the immigration that we were talking about earlier, but also because of the pandemic, there's much stronger desire for working from home. And so the floor space per person, the demand for floor space has increased very considerably. Lots of bedrooms are now home offices. I mean, in fact, I think I can see from the video, maybe you guys have them. Um, but well, I mean, and, and that's where I'm broadcasting from. I mean, it used to be a bedroom, now it's a home office. Um, that's happening everywhere. And as a result, the demand for housing has increased substantially. And that is, well, a, a factor that no one was expecting a few years ago, but that has added very substantially to the demand for housing and hence to prices. So I think that is going to put us on a higher trend than we were before the pandemic. It's Yeah, it's interesting way of thinking about it at a, at a whole country level. It's like having more children, right? We, we needed more, we need more rooms if we have more children. Um, but also our home office is, is a, is a bedroom, right? Um, and so we had pent up demands if people were, you know, had two bedrooms and they had, you know, two kids, they, they, that's, and they were living in an apartment, they need to upgrade to something bigger, right? But also that person who had a three bedroom house, but needs four bedrooms because they need the home office. And so maybe that's so where yeah. it makes the biggest difference is in shared houses, the people that, yeah, a, a dwelling that did was shared between say three people is now shared between two with that bedroom is now an office. And so that third person is off looking for a place of their own now. Well, that's just added to the demand, you know, on the rental side in particular, hasn't it? What, what's the shortfall at the moment, P uh, Peter? Do you know that off the top of your head in terms of dwellings in this country? So there are lots of different estimates around. Um, I d actually don't like most of them. I think the best way of m measuring the excess demand is looking at prices um, and, you know, and their prices in, in Sydney is... Uh, it's about a million dollars for the average apartment. Costs about six hundred thousand to supply. So there's a forty percent overprice. And on your standard rule of thumb to get rid of that is going to take what is it about a ten, fifteen percent increase in supply. So into and, and this gets back to our earlier discussion of housing targets. That's the sort of calculation I would use to figure out how many extra apartments we need to build because we have no real way of calibrating um, the effect of working from home um, other than, well, we can see what it's doing to vacancies, um, you know, which are incredibly tight, and we can see what's happening to rents, which are rising very quickly. And so the observable things tell us we need to build a lot more housing. The only way to calibrate that, I think, is the best way to calibrate that is by the gap between prices and, and costs. Mm. Peter, you could end us with a property dumbo. It's it's um you might have I'm not sure if you're prepared, but it's just a story, maybe another one recently of someone making a property mistake or a tale that we can all learn from. Well, just let's get back to what we were talking about before. Some of the developments in the eastern suburbs, in particular, the thing. One of the arguments against extra density that I find dumbest is that it's going to increase traffic. <laughs> and so you, ha you have all the councillors in the eastern suburbs, a lot of places which are actually even walking distance to the CBD and certainly to high transport, are saying we can't have extra density here because it's going to create traffic problems. So instead, the new housing is going out Leppington or Appen or yeah, a three-hour drive from the CBD. And so this supposedly anti-traffic campaign is the most counterproductive argument I've heard. It makes a lot of sense, right? It's all about the same argument with motorways, isn't it? You know, like, um, yeah, it's, it's only all of a sudden it's going to get full. <laughs> but it is funny, though, because when you were talking about what could be built in Mossman along Military Road there, the first thing that came to my mind was traffic. 
And that's yep. because it's already bumper to bumper most of the time. And also you're relying on buses for public transport, which use those roads as well. So more people, more buses, even if they don't have cars, you know, so, so I, it, like I, you say it's the stupidest, the silliest argument, but I think in some cases it actually has some merits, right? Well, people got to move it, around. It, it needs to be accompanied by better infrastructure. Um, that we and so in particular, they're putting a tunnel um, out to the northern beaches to deal with. Well, I don't know; it's been approved. Oh, I no, think it's all been canned. That's um, I'm on the beaches. That's definitely been canned. There was a uh, that was Gladys's idea, but uh, Gladys is no longer here. But <laughs> and yeah, but but the basic idea is if you're putting more housing, say in the northern beaches or in in the way to that, then you need to bring those proposals back. The two need to accompany each other. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Peter. Another insightful chat. And um, it's a conversation that I think we're going to be having for many years, but I think it's important for, I think there is a groundswell, you know, there's actually YIMBY parties and um, little groups that people meet up at, at night times and, uh, you know, with their pickets. So I appreciate you coming on, Peter. Yeah, great, great to talk. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.